0: Can probably tell with this uh, massive m- amount of enthusiasm that I'm just dripping out of my voice today that I have a very special guest for the show today, and uh, it is definitely the best guest I've ever landed for the show for you guys. Uh, uh, it's a huge, huge, huge win for the for the cycle and for the election whisperer, and that's because today I am treating you guys to a one-on-one deep dive conversation with the one and the only Lawrence O'Donnell, host of The Last Word on MSNBC. And as you probably know, a longtime expert on the United States Senate, longtime aide to U.S. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York, back in the in the days of, of the noble Senate, right? When the Senate operated. So, you know, you have to forgive uh, Lawrence's application you know back in the days when the senate was still functional joe Biden's senate i guess we'll call it um but still relevant knowledge uh and he had um you know served on uh you know key committee there and um you know spent a long time moving legislation through that committee um you know lawrence is an expert when it comes to senate procedural things and i I was sitting there thinking as we were watching this 50-50 Senate emerge, and Mitch McConnell and 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 Chuck Schumer doing their uh, power struggle, peacock posturing, uh, you know, lots of us looking at Schumer going, well, Why? Why isn't this committee chair thing happening?" And uh, I was thinking, "Gosh, I really need somebody that is an expert on the inner workings of the Senate that I could talk to." Uh, you know, I in the world of political science in the world of political science, academics, I should say, people who go and are so self-effacing that they'll go and get a PhD and study politics in it. We, we, we like to divide our field into two areas uh, for American politics anyway. People who study political behavior, which is obviously me, right? People who study voters and politicians and why people do the things that they do. But there's another area and those are called institutionalist. And I am not an institutionalist. I uh, really actually struggle in the field of institutions. Uh, it was not my forte. You, I do the things that I'm good at. I was a behavioralist. Institutionalism is a is a whole different banana. And I, um, am not, I'm not well-versed in it. So I wanted somebody who really understood institution, the institution particularly of the Senate. Because it's one thing to understand how humans think and navigate strategically environments, but the rules that structure behavior that's that's everything. I mean behavior is always conditioned by rules. institutions and the rules that that um, provide the rules of the game are always going to be the deciding factor for behavior. So if you don't understand that, you don't understand what's what is driving or shaping the possible outcomes or um, things that people can do behaviorally, then you're really going to have a hard time anticipating what people are going to do. And as you guys know, that's my whole shtick. I like to know, like I just like sit there and think through what's coming down the pipe two months from now, three months from now, six months from now, two years from now, you know um, how is Schumer going to navigate a 50 plus one vice presidential tie-breaking um situation when he's got these two problematic senators uh Joe Manchin in West Virginia who has no electoral incentive by the way to kind of give on the filibuster uh Kristen Cinema from Arizona who does you know theoretically have some vulnerability to a elect elective pressure to give on the filibuster you know so he's he's got you know massive pressure to get things done I think a very strong argument about, you know, a pro-democracy, you must get things done to, to give people an argument to save democracy, um, you know, argument that's going to be coming not just from the left, but from people like me, people like Lincoln Project, people uh, who are very um, worried about the stability of our democracy right now, who see Democrats making gains, delivering for the American people on their platform. Uh, and promises in the campaigns as a key um, way to maintain democratic stability. So Schumer is in a real, real difficult position because he's got 50 seats. He's, he needs 51 to move with a simple majority. But in theory, he needs 60 votes to move anything. And so filibuster reform is going to be a major key, um, you know, piece of the conversation. And, and I think that Lawrence O'Donnell is going to be a really valuable Person That can help us kind of navigate through the potential there. But I was already excited about like, you know, kind of delving in there the other night, though, when uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, Lawrence's colleague on MSNBC and and popular host of the Maddow show, was interviewing or airing her interview of of the majority leader of, of Chuck Schumer. The news broke that McConnell had, had decided to give in and, and allow the committee chairs to be redistributed for the majority party, for the Democrats. Um, I was so excited because the Lawrence's show started, Lawrence, and you can't know this, but I tweeted out about your show and your introduction right away because you, in your opening bid, made a statement or um, a comment about McConnell's decision to finally give in and redistribute the chairs. And your observation was this. You said, and you can, um, you'll can, you have to correct me if my inter- interpretation of what you said is wrong, but the way that I took your um, analysis was you said, okay, McConnell has caved here because he thinks that Schumer had enough votes that in a couple of days, if McConnell was going to throw this temper tantrum over just redistributing these committee chairs... That On that issue, at least, Manchin and Cinema might have been compelled to give in on filibuster reform. Is that what, what you were saying?
1: Yeah, that's what we saw happen. Uh, so, okay. you know, the Senate has a, a majority leader in Chuck Schumer, has a minority leader in uh, Mitch McConnell. And then there are a bunch of other jobs that people call the leadership. Those are all fraudulent. They're completely fraudulent. They have no function in the Senate. You know, you'll hear so-and-so is the... They they, they distribute these titles to people um, for ver- various reasons, but they have no function. In the House, they have more of a function. You know, there is the Speaker. The Whip does have a little bit more of a function in the House. Um, you know, Steny Hoyer has some work to do in the House, but not, not that much. Uh, it, it's a real job, though. Uh, in the Senate, those titles are all fake. So... You've got the majority leader, you've got the minority leader, and you have Joe Manchin. And we don't have a title for that, because Joe Manchin is in as much control of what happens in the Senate as those three people are. So there are three, uh, in effect, leaders of the Senate, which is to say people who will be in the decisive position uh, to decide you know, how we go from here to there. And McConnell's position is going to be fundamentally blocking everything he possibly can. Schumer's position is going to be try to move everything he possibly can. And everything Schumer can move is 100% dependent on what Joe Manchin thinks and what way he wants to vote on that. And so what was happening is um, you could see it in Rachel's uh, interview of Chuck Schumer. Which was done a few hours before. It was taped a few hours before, and and Schumer, Schumer kept saying when she said, you know, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to work your way out of this this uh, roadblock that you're in right now? And he just had this smile, and he just kept saying, stay tuned, stay tuned. He wouldn't say this is what I'm going to do, but he the and I know Chuck very very well. You know, my, the senator I worked for was the senior senator from New York. Uh, Chuck was a House member at the time. We had a lot of dealings with Chuck. Uh, Senator Moynihan was very fond of Chuck Schumer. Chuck used to come over and and literally just visit, you know, uh, a a fair amount, drop by the office, uh, no political agenda in mind. And um, because Chuck, as a Harvard student, was a student of Professor Moynihan's at at Harvard. And so they had this very long, um, you know, kind of professor-student relationship. Um, And... So I was watching Chuck, as I say, who I know very well. I was watching in the way he was saying it. Because the thing that matters to me when I, you know, when I have to watch this stuff out in the audience and I don't actually know for a fact what's happening inside, um, is I'm always looking for the level of confidence that that person has. And if I know the person, then I can really tell how much confidence they have. And I could see Schumer was one confident that we were not going to be sitting here a week from now having this same discussion, which said to me, he has Joe Manchin ready to absolutely destroy the filibuster if this is the first thing that Mitch McConnell is going to block. If Mitch McConnell is going to block something that has never before in the history of the Senate been blocked, which is the organizing resolution, if he's going to block that, then that was going to break Joe Manchin and Joe Manchin felt I'm sure that he was going to have no trouble explaining that in West Virginia. And um, and but and, and I also think McConnell, you know, has to have and he does have an incredibly precise sensitivity to exactly what the frustration level is of whoever the key player is at any given moment. And I think McConnell uh, understood. He he was on the verge of losing Mansion, and if he lost Mansion, he was going to lose everything, and he had to had to do it. And so uh, McConnell would have, you know, if he could have been confident that he was going to keep Mansion on this, he would have kept doing that stuff. You know,
0: I so am oh, so so excited to hear that. I thought that's what you said. I rewound it one time, <laughs> rewatched what you said. And then I shot up off of my bed and, like, literally, like, MSNBC, I hope they listen to this podcast and hear what I'm saying because, like, they have this whole ad campaign that they use to market the channel which is like, uh this is why you watch, right? That is, like, that should be one of those this is why you watch moments because I was running around my bedroom screaming, this is why you watch! <laughs> like, that kind of analysis. I mean, like, if you, I mean, it's one, I mean, I guess I, I don't want to sound like an elitist, okay? It's, it's one thing for, like, the average person, but, like, for someone like me to get something of that kind of value, of that level of analysis that's why I watch. Okay, I mean, it was it was incredible to get that analysis out of you, Lawrence. And dang, if I had your phone number, I would have been calling you. You know.
1: Well, <laughs> let me let me go back. And by the way, the reason it's not a promo is you heard how long it took me to say it. Like I, oh, I, I can never say anything in thirty seconds. But, but <laughs> let me go back to this point you made, which I didn't know because I've never taken a political science course. I don't know anything about the discipline. Um, But I didn't know about this distinction you made between, uh, you know, as you put it, the behavioralists and the institutionalists and and you tend to study the politics of campaigning and they study the politics of governing. Okay, what's so interesting about that is that the institutionalists are a, I believe, a complete and utter failure and waste of time in your arena. I, I would never, no one should ever pay attention to them because the reason is. They don't know that, right? Because that can't be taught. What I just described is very particular to my knowledge of Chuck Schumer, my personal knowledge of Mitch McConnell, who was who I also worked with when I worked in the Senate uh, and and that is that's the part of institutional analysis that they never have uh, because what it, what it is, it's an institution run by human beings, and this is the important part. Every single rule in the institution can be changed at any moment, at any moment by human beings. So it's not like the study of law, you know, where Lord's tribe can study a constitutional issue over, you know, 210 years and give you an extremely scholarly opinion about why it is where it is and why it's going to be there forever. OK, that's impossible in uh, an institutional study of the House or the Senate. Especially the Senate, because they can just change their rules. You know, and the the right, right. so called filibuster rule is a great example of that, you know, which has had a variety of different versions over time, including most of the history of the Senate. There was no rule on it at all. And so um so that's a really, really important point. And, and uh, they
0: can do it without without the impediment that I'm always stuck with, which is the voter. Right. Which is the American public where when I want to change shit, I got to deal with them. Right. First, I have to deal with getting it through that process in in this Senate institutional process. It's internal and they can change it within themselves. And I'll be honest with you. Right. Like I don't like so. Like I have this whole agenda. Right. Like I'm always constantly trying to suggest to things to for Democrats to do You know, we're in this position where one of the political parties has radicalized. It's the Republican Party. It is there is not this there's not a two party or a two um, both sides issue in terms of extremism and radicalism right now in American politics. One party has an extremism issue. It has, uh the extremism or radicalism has overtaken the main elements of the Republican Party and are now, you know, running that party in such a way as it has endangered the stability of democracy. As a citizen, I have endeavored to try to help stabilize democracy. And so one of the things that I'm doing in that role is I'm thinking about things Democrats can do strategically you know, to try to um, better perform electorally, you know, what can they change? What can they do that's better? You know, how can they tweak electioneering? How can they better uh, plan for the next cycle? But in terms of the institution of the Senate, I don't know those rules well. And I and I definitely can't strategically think, like, what can Chuck Schumer do, uh, he, especially if he's hamstrung, going at full nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster, how might he tweak the rules of the filibuster best, right? And that's like, you know, a half the questions that I got submitted from my audience, you know, I think um, uh, uh, were dealt specifically with how are we going to get around this, like, you know, hesitancy for uh, Manchin and, and Senema to deal with the filibuster. So like one of the motivations for me to bring you on Is Okay, here's Lawrence O'Donnell. He intimately understands not only like how the Senate operates, but the current rule structure. And he might be able to tell us a little bit or suggest to us a little bit some of the things that people could be advocating for institutionally, you know, Democrats could change within that institution that gets around changing the whole filibuster, but allows legislation to move.
1: Well, um... So I'm just going to put this parentheses down for a moment, and then we're going to proceed in a way as if I haven't said it. Um, okay. We abuse the word filibuster. It's a news media convenience. We have been using the word filibuster for decades now. Um, and in my professional lifetime, I've only seen one filibuster. One. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that was in the early 1990s. Um, it was 90. 92, maybe probably 92, and so what we have, what the news media has lazily done is they have labeled every single procedural delay tactic in the Senate the filibuster, which mm-hmm. it is, which it absolutely is not. And so, um, so there's a bunch of different ways that delays can happen, and there are, you know, there's a, the, the way to overcome any delay a 60-vote majority can overcome any version of delay. And that's what people are generally referring to when they're talking about the filibuster. And so um, so if you don't have 60, then how do you proceed? And again, I'm going to do an interpretation for you, but what it sounds to me, Chuck Schumer is saying. Um, and if he's not saying this, then, you know, there's going to be (laughs) a pretty gigantic disappointment out there, which he will have been part of creating.
0: Yeah, and just for my audience's sake, I'm just going to tell them real quick the context. This ties back uh, that same night for that show and and Maddow's interview with Schumer. Lawrence goes on to opine in his own show that he his sense was that Schumer has some additional procedural ideas of of how to get around. Moving legislation without actually abolishing the filibuster in the sense that it would get cinema and mansion. Yeah,
1: but but it would in effect eliminate what people currently think of as yes. as the so called yes. filibuster. So here's what it is: um, I keep hearing Chuck Schumer saying they're going to do the COVID relief bill in reconciliation. Right. Well, that's impossible. Uh, the reconciliation right. rules do not allow it, and no one in the press knows what the reconciliation rules are because they are. They are complex parliamentary rules that include that are mostly that mostly involve when you um, when you raise the objection on the Senate floor a budget point of order. Uh, and by the way, LBJ knew nothing about this, the so-called master of the Senate, because none of these rules existed when he was president. The budget committee didn't exist. We didn't bother to even estimate how much things cost. Uh, they they didn't have anything resembling an official government estimate of how much Medicare would cost when they voted oh, wow. to enact it, right? Well, and so all that stuff got done in those days because none of these rules existed. And they they all came into play um, in the kind of 1970s and 80s spirit of, quote, getting control of the federal budget. Okay. And so, So a reconciliation bill is supposed to be nothing but a budget bill. The only thing you're allowed to do in a reconciliation bill is increase or decrease spending for a pre-existing program uh, or increase and decrease an already existing tax. So, you know, there's a very strong argument that you would not be allowed to create a gasoline tax in a reconciliation bill if it didn't exist already. But in any reconciliation bill, you can make the gasoline tax go in any direction you want, any amount you want, okay? Um, There's a rule that is about uh, extraneous matters, matters that are unrelated to the budget. And so the minimum wage, for example, they keep throwing around as one of the things that's going to get done. This increase in the minimum wage is going to be done in reconciliation. Well, if you're wondering why the minimum wage, you know, can go 10 years without being raised it's because you can't do it in reconciliation there's no previous interpretation of the reconciliation rules that allow you to think about the minimum wage in a reconciliation bill and so not only are they thinking about it they're telling their voters who voted for them we're going to do it now I've seen them do that and in the past you know that kind of thing happens and sometimes it's honestly meant, and then you get into the legislative process and you lose and you don't get it. Sometimes it's dishonestly meant, okay? And you say, we're going to do this, and we promise you we're going to do this, and we put it in the bill, and big surprise, it gets voted out by amendment, and sorry, we couldn't get it done. Well, they always knew they couldn't get it done. But to placate you, they pretended, you know, that they were going to get it done. They are talking about this minimum wage, both in the House and the Senate as being something that will go through reconciliation in a way that is either politically irresponsible because people are going to come back at them and say, how dare you promise me that and fail? Or they have a plan. And the plan, there's only one plan, which is you're going to have to get the Senate parliamentarian to make a ruling that the Senate parliamentarian has never made before on the admissibility of a minimum wage provision in a reconciliation bill. Or or you're going to do something we also haven't seen, which is quite radical in terms of the Senate. <clears throat> the Senate parliamentarian, who never makes an announcement, you, you will never hear the Senate parliamentarian speak on the Senate floor. What the Senate parliamentarian does is whisper to the person who's sitting up there in the chair as the presiding officer who knows zero about Senate procedure, every single one of them, and they tend to be freshman senators, so they really know less than zero. The parliamentarian whispers up to the presiding officer, and the presiding officer says, uh, "The uh, you know, the budget point of order is recognized, blah, blah, blah. So the parliamentarian will whisper the finding to Vice President Kamala Harris, sitting in the presiding officer's chair as president of the Senate. She will hear that the minimum wage violates, um, you know the, the budget reconciliation rules, and she will ignore it. Just ignore the parliamentarian's okay. recommendation and declare that it does not.
0: Okay. okay.
1: And at that point, McConnell will ask for a vote to overrule the chair. Okay and they and there will be 51 votes. Mansion yeah. Mansion will vote for that. Okay? Uh right. that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing and what I and the way they talk about it. Now, Mansion will get to say I did not absolutely did not change the filibuster rules in any way. No. But but in reality, he just did on right, on that right, vote, right? right? But Gosh. think about what that vote is. Does that sound like I'll ask you Rachel, you understand voters better than I do? Does a raise in the minimum wage sound like a defensible vote for Joe Manchin in West sure Virginia? it does. Yeah, it does to me, yeah. too. And I don't know anything about voters, and it does to me. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, so there you have a peek into the possible future. And let me just tell you, the outrage, if that's what happens, if... Kamala Harris overrules the parliamentarian and by the way in doing so she'll be overruling decades of parliamentarians you know going yes, going, right, going right. back into the 1970s.
0: Yeah well you know i mean i guess i would feel a little bit more like indignant on behalf of the senate minority party if they didn't if they hadn't just refused to hold a confirmation hearing for a year almost for a supreme court appointee you know
1: Look this is um <laughs> This is why, you know, the institutionalists in your profession are at a loss, you know, because what you're factoring into the vote is an emotion, right? You're yes. saying because of the frustration and the emotions you put me through before on something that was unprecedented and unjustifiable, I'm now going to put you through that same feeling.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: and by the way, if if this happens, okay, if, if this does happen and, you know, the uh, the presiding officer... Uh, in this case, has to be Harris because they need they need all 51. Um, if she overrules the parliamentarian, the outrage speech that you will hear from Mitch McConnell about yeah. that as a as a as a procedural event, never mind the yeah. underlying merits of the case, but the procedural event, that speech will be word for word, what Chuck Schumer would say. If, yes. it, if it was being done by the other side. And, no and those no are doubt. always my favorite moments in the Senate. Oh it, my gosh, you yes. Know, the, those <laughs> are like, and the public never knows it, you know, because the public always believes that their side is righteous. And yes. So they never, ever know that, oh, under this exact same circumstance, if you flip the situation, each party would be saying exactly the opposite thing. Oh my it, gosh, It yeah. used to happen, I have to say, it used to happen, you know, once or twice a year. Now it's yeah. relatively rare because the difference between these parties and the behavioral difference, most importantly, yes. the behavioral difference among them as office holders has become wild, you know, mm-hmm. and they are, I mean, the McConnell side of the world and, and the McCarthy side of the world are grotesquely uh, anti-institutional. And, yes. and and the Democrats are correct and every observer at home is correct in thinking there's not a single thing, there's not a single precedent of the Senate McConnell would not violate in a second, in a second, you know, for his benefit. And by the way, just on a personal note, uh, I I would just add one of the things that's so disorienting for me about the age of, of Trump is Mitch McConnell himself. Because when I was working in the Senate, Mitch McConnell was one of the reasonable conservative Republicans. He was he was a bit more conservative than Bob Dole, but only a bit. And he was completely reasonably cooperative with Bob Dole's leadership and what, wherever Bob Dole wanted to take them. And Bob Dole was the last uh, responsible in any way, Republican leader of the Senate and effective, responsible yeah. and effective. I mean, You know, Trent Lott was a pretty okay institutionalist, but he wasn't effective. Dole Dole was both effective, smart, and reasonable, and parenthetically a good guy, for whatever that's worth. Uh, McConnell, I thought, was a good guy at the time. And I thought he was all of those things that Dole was. And if you had said to me in, you know, I don't know, 1995, you know, the first time I saw the Republicans, you know, take over the Senate, if you said to me, you know, eventually... Uh, Mitch McConnell is going to become majority leader. I'd go, oh, that's nice, that's good. When's that going to happen? You know that that's good. That'll yeah. be good. He'll he'll grow up. He'll grow up to be. A, we'll have a Bob Dole again. You know when that happens. Oh
0: man, that that's sucks. what I that's
1: what I thought, right? And so it's like a horror movie to me.
0: Yeah, it's like Danforth's, uh, Pat, uh Pat, Senator Danforth, uh, uh, mentoring of Hawley. Right? You you expect this thing to happen, and then you end up with this entirely different. Person. Yeah, yeah. It's, so there's a yeah.
1: horror movie quality to it for some of the older Republican senators who I know, I I, I just don't, you know, I I can't explain a moment of of their existence, you know, since Trump came along.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's, I mean, that's the problem is that McConnell, so, you know, McConnell's issue is that he will, he will do anything to win, like anything to win. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's, it's not that, you know, you want to be in a tit-for-tat position or you want to see Kamala Harris have to void 40 years of parliamentary rules, right? Um, I mean, well, I mean, me, you know, let me, just say, would...
1: let me just say something about the rules. I mean, you know, uh, the like any Senate, every Senate rule you can make an argument against. But what yeah. happens with any rule, as you know, is that Anywhere, you know, whether it be in religion or anywhere, is that with time the reverence for the rule tends to grow, you know, sure. and, um, and 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 so and and you can, you know, you 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 look at it and, and you say, well, wait, w- w- remind me again why the minimum wage can't be in a reconciliation bill, like why exactly, you know, and um, right. and by the way, here's what I think they would do with with the minimum wage parliamentary ruling. Here's the way I would try to work it. It's the argument, Schumer will make this argument. And by the way, you get to lobby the parliamentarian privately, right? You get to like go into his office and say, listen, this, this, and so they do it, you know, they lobby them. They send the staff into the lobby of the parliamentarian and make an argument because you know, this is gonna come up on the floor. And you say, listen, I know that you're thinking, or I know it might look like the minimum wage an extraneous matter and it's unrelated to the federal budget Uh, but if we increase the minimum wage we are going to increase social security tax revenues through that that is going to be a you know a positive in the budgetary ledger therefore it does have a budget effect to a pre-existing program which is basically social security taxes and Medicare taxes, the payroll taxes will go up. The income taxes won't really go up, you know, because if you're making minimum wage, you still don't have a real income tax liability, but they'll be able to come in there and show them. And they will ask CBO for an estimate of how much will social security revenue, social security tax, how much revenue will go up because we do this, you know, and, and, and CBO will come up with an estimate and it'll say this is what this is what it'll be. And they will be arguing that, you know, to uh the parliamentarian, and the parliamentarian has never heard that argument before, and they're never comfortable with arguments they've never heard before. <laughs>
0: you know. Right. I mean, it's it's to some degree, right? Didn't they ultimately have to rely on um reconciliation with Obamacare? So somebody had to do that. Yeah, but that I gotta, you know, Great. see
1: yeah, but using reconciliation for Obamacare, that was the biggest uh the most unprecedented use of reconciliation yet i mean if you yes. if you really were reconciliation true believer that was an outrage
0: and well that's what i mean like they so in the same circumstance right somebody had to go into the parliamentarian yeah but the parliamentarian the parliamentarian right? did,
1: parliamentarian did not give them any breaks and that's why Obamacare had to be passed as two separate bills. There was a reconciliation bill piece of it, but the parliamentarian threw out all of these health, like, you know, health insurance for kids and their family policy till they're 26. That couldn't be in reconciliation. So that stuff all got thrown out and it had to move move in a separate bill. And so that had never happened in history where the legislation that you're going to sign with one signature... Happened through two completely different legislative vehicles. Wow! You know, regi- uh, you know it, they pretended that it was one signature. It was two totally different legislative vehicles, and they weren't going to do reg- uh, reconciliation at all uh, until Ted Kennedy died and they lost their uh, their sixty votes in the Senate, and that's when they panicked and they actually initially they simply gave up. When Ted Kennedy died, they, internally, both in the House oh, and the I Senate- Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Internally in oh the House God. and the Senate, the first reaction was, it's over. There's nothing we can do. It's over.
0: After all, after a year. Yeah, investment. it's
1: over. We're, <laughs> we can't do it. And then, uh, and they were dead for like a week. And then they- You kinda, know who
0: the person was that came up with the reconciliation backdoor?
1: Well, it, it wasn't so much coming up with the procedure, but lighting the fire to stand up and say, no, 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 no. We can't stop now. Uh, I know in the Senate- in the, when the door was closed uh, and, and including with the White House, Al Franken. Um, Good for him. He was one of the people, and I could name names of people who gave up completely, including in the House, who are very famous liberals. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Maybe which, after. Which, which I won't do. Which <laughs> I won't do for their comfort. Um, and, you know, Al did it because he didn't know better. You know, Al did yeah, it. Yeah, well, Al it. that's he, what
0: it takes, right? Yeah,
1: Al did it because he hadn't been around the Senate long enough to know it was impossible you know, and turned out, you know, he was right.
0: Well, I think that's what we need right now. I mean, at least that's what I am advocating for in terms of my own work, right? Is that, you know it's a good thing I, I don't know what's possible and what's not because democracy is on the line, right? <laughs> so a lot of people who submitted questions wanted me to ask you specifically, like, if you were to sit down right now with Manchin, I mean, because, you know, this reconciliation option's an option, but it's a tough option, as you just pointed out. So, like, if you were to sit down with Joe and uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, I mean, I have I have an argument I can make with Cinema, Like, the, she... Probably does not understand how her own election happened. Uh, There is in Arizona actually a small contingent of surplus Republican crossover voting because of the McCain Republicans who are, there is a never Trump vote in in Arizona. Um, But she doesn't need to worry about them in the way that she thinks she does. Um, But you know, her, her election um, re-election path is the same as it is in Georgia, as it is in Pennsylvania, as it is in Michigan. It is not the old model. We just put, we just sent two, liberal Democrats, a black guy, and a Jewish guy to the Senate in Georgia, okay? You do that, you know, by uh, making the electorate more percent Repub- uh, Democrat and Democratic-leaning independents than Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. It's about who votes, not, you know, some wishy-washy, you know, moderate old formula electoral thing. So Senema's electoral calculation is based on this like old model that's completely off. Mansion of course is in a u- unique position and if you can't have both you you might as well have zero, right? So what would you say to Mansion in particular? Like what would you say to him to get him it, it, let's say we're 6 months from now though, right? And we're still not moving any policy. And and, and reconciliation isn't working. Like what would you say to get him to 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 change his mind and and nuke the filibuster,
1: I'd say the same thing that I said. The Democratic senators I had to work with when I was there, who were in Joe Manchin's position, including on my committee, uh, Max Baucus from Montana, who was very much in the kind of Joe Manchin position legislatively all the time. He was frequently he was on one of our most important bills, the last vote that I was able to get was very difficult because it involved raising taxes. I also had, um, you know, David Bourne from Oklahoma. I had John Bro from Louisiana. You know, we used to have Democratic senators from those places not that long ago. I mean, uh, and and we also had Sam Nunn from Georgia. We had 57 Democrats, right, when, yeah. I, when I was legislating. Uh, and, Richard, and many
0: of them from the South.
1: Richard Shelby, Richard Shelby of Alabama, the senior Republican senator from Alabama, was a Democrat then, okay? He was right. a Democratic senator from Alabama. So we had many more. Joe Manchin's the only one left, you know, in that yes. kind of spot, right? We had many, many more uh, Democratic senators at that time who were elected in states that were fundamentally Republican, that were always voting Republican, and they managed to sneak past that hurdle in their states. And they did it basically on a personal basis, on a very personal basis. And that's what Joe Manchin does. And so I would say to Joe Manchin, thank you for voting for Chuck Schumer for Majority Leader and whatever you do after that is okay with me. Because because without you, if you don't get elected in West Virginia, then we're not having a conversation about anything. We're not confirming a single federal judge not yeah. one, okay, if Joe Manchin doesn't get elected in West Virginia. So you could talk to them, Rachel, because you can talk to them about their electorates. I don't know anything about their electorates, okay? I do know that West Virginia doesn't have the population that Georgia has, that Stacey Abrams was able to activate, okay? Uh, and and so, um, you know, the... You have to be very grateful to those senators that they managed to win an election and, and keep a seat that would otherwise be Republican, exactly. because the only reason you have Democratic chairs of Senate committees is because they got elected. The only reason Chuck Schumer is majority leader is because they got elected. Okay, And what they have to do to stay elected is what I want them to do, because I want to continue to be a chairman and I want to continue to be the majority leader. Okay. So that's the most important thing about them. They have cast the most important vote they can cast, which is right. who's going to lead this body, who's going to control it. Um, and you know, the it's really all about Manchin. And, you know, they the reason there's two, <clears throat> cinema would not be out there alone. Okay, if Joe Manchin said, you know what? I'm with I'm with the rest. Yes, of, I'm exactly. moving over with the rest of the team. Exactly. Cinema would go okay. You know, and yeah. and Joe Manchin loves that cinema is there because it's not completely his fault, right? No, no. So that the, whatever whatever you know whatever the kind of New York Democrats and California Democrats are angry about, it's not just Joe Manchin.
0: Well, like, again, Manchin is the only. I mean, he is a Tester, who is actually not Tester technically. Could argue he has electoral vulnerability. Well, uh, what Tester is doing, what, it, right?
1: What John Tester's doing, it, it's very simple. It, yeah, it, he would have a serious problem if they weren't out there. Yeah. John Tester gets to stay absolutely silent because the issue is settled because there's two of them.
0: Well, he's no, he's made a public statement already. He he made a, a public statement that he is in the Senate to get policy done and he's very he wants to make policy. Yeah, so yeah. he's That's a great frustrated. What does that? He's mean? frustrated.
1: What does that mean? I don't know what that. He means.
0: wants he doesn't he wants uh he he wants Mansion to move on the filibuster is what he wants. And you know what? Good for him for being willing to do that. But you know, I, you know, you and I both understand Mansion does have the exact opposite electoral incentive, right? He faces a uh, electorate that broke for Trump by like 50 points or something like that, right? Now he's not up for election for a long time. So, uh, but, you know, if he nukes the filibuster, I think he has to do so, understanding that it's probably with the decision to retire, right? Uh, and then I think it's the question of, you know, do you decide what's most important, nuking the filibuster to move policy? Because if you if Democrats don't move policy democracy the you know, if if people don't see progress, if people don't see policy happen this time, then we may not see democracy, like American democracy.
1: Well, yeah, right? I mean, that, of course, that's a mistake by by voters who see it that way.
0: You don't, you, you, you don't, you think that democracy will survive if there's no policy? Well, first of all, I
1: don't use the word democracy because we don't, we have democracy at the state and local level. We do not have it in the federal government because we have two profoundly anti-democratic institutions that were designed by the founders to be anti-democratic, and that is the Senate and the Electoral College. And they are functioning in exactly the anti-democratic way the founders intended them to function. So we don't I, I just don't like the word it's, yeah, not, it's I my get it, I thing get it. I don't use the I guess what I mean
0: specifically is but um, a voter, we may a voter end up thinks, in a situation where we no longer award the the majority vote winner the election you know what i mean like like that's what i worry about i mean the the funny th- of course voters
1: should not have to know more about this than they know about golf or baseball right. or the things that they care about passionately but you know, I can show pretty much every voter that they actually do care about an awful lot more than legislation. And I, the only way I can show that to them, the only way they will feel it, is when someone like Donald Trump gets a Supreme Court nomination. Right. Because if somebody like, you know, George H.W. Bush gets a Supreme Court nomination and he appoints David Souter, who is, you know, pro-Roe versus Wade and all this stuff, no one's going to feel anything was at stake in the Supreme Court. Even, you know, when Justice, Chief Justice Roberts uh, gets appointed by uh, George W. Bush, nobody feels like the republic just fell. You know, but when Donald Trump gets to put three people on the Supreme Court, you should understand at that point what presidential elections are about. And if you don't think they're about anything other than the Supreme Court, You should be animated enough to vote in a presidential election because of that. And so um, there's a wild, you know, overemphasis uh, in voter expectation uh, that's based on legislation, as if it's the only thing, as if the Iran nuclear deal is, you know, I don't, you know, how do you want to evaluate um, the importance of, say, a marginal increase in the minimum wage to uh, a much better defense against pandemics entering the United States? Because both of those are a government function. One, none of us knew was a government function until fairly recently. Uh, (laughs) How many minimum wage workers have been killed by the coronavirus who could have been alive today Uh, by a better governmental response to the coronavirus. So, you know, there's no legislation uh, was necessary uh, for us to deal properly with the coronavirus as soon as we heard about it in January. You know, the governmental structures were in place and ready to go. You could want some legislation down the road, but at at that moment, we knew, you know, who to put in charge of the response, and we didn't. And that's because we voted for the wrong person for president. So, um, you know, there's so much more in government than legislation every single day. If if they don't pass, you know, one piece of legislation, it will have been a wild success <histor- right, right. historically to elect uh, Joe Biden and to elect a Democratic Senate because they will fill every single federal judge vacancy that they have, including possibly a Supreme Court a vacancy if it comes up. Uh, You know, they will conduct sane foreign policy around the world. The president of the United States will call up Vladimir Putin and say, let that guy out of prison right now just because he opposes you is no reason to poison him, try to kill him, arrest all of his friends and arrest him. You know, and that is worth voting for. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're mad at your football team because they didn't run enough pass plays. You know, yeah, it's totally like, well, me. they they got a bunch of field goals. You go, yeah, I know, but they don't excite me. I go, I know, but they they scored. They they won. You know, know. they won three to nothing. You know, on a field goal, or you know, it's like you know, people if they want to be you know real about this, um, they're they're going to have to learn to take in the totality of government. Uh, when they look at what their vote does, uh, and they look at, you know, how lasting their vote is, you know, and uh, because your vote, I mean, your vote can, you know, because, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was elected to the United States Senate, okay, because of that, Sonia Sotomayor was chosen to become a federal judge in New York, because The the tradition is, yes, it's technically a presidential appointment, but the president doesn't have any idea how to fill these hundreds of judgeships around the country. So they basically give them to the senator of their party in their state, in in that state. So Moynihan says, here's who I want, Sonia Sotomayor. She gets confirmed, and now she's sitting there uh, on the Supreme Court um, because... People voted in New York for Daniel Patrick Moynihan and because they voted for a Democratic president to make that choice and put her on the Supreme Court. And if you don't look at her and say, my vote worked every time you see her. No and no one does. No that's one right. does. They don't yeah. think that's what their vote does. They they don't they do. think it's about that. Sonia Sotomayor in the Supreme Court is as lasting a thing as you can do with your yes. vote. Because, you know, if, if you... If you get legislation passed, you know, it can always be repealed. You know, there's all sorts of things that can happen. Um, But and I'm all for, you know, a legislative scorecard and I'll be disappointed with legislative accomplishments that don't happen. Um, But I'm going to still watch the whole score. And no matter what, you know, Donald Trump being out of the presidency every single day of every single day of the Biden presidency is a complete success because of
0: that. No doubt. Just for the things that aren't being done to you, right? Or to other people. I mean, people, especially the people who are paying or were paying directly with their lives, right?
1: (laughs) How many Washington Post columnists do you think the Saudis are going to torture, dismember, and execute while Joe Joe Biden is president? My guess is zero. That's my guess.
0: So like one of you know so you know one of the things that the organization I'm building um, which is it's a super PAC called Strike pack, but what it really is, it, you know that's just the way it's organized so that it can take money from small donors and large donors um, is is it's basically like a it's an alternative like war it's it's a war machine, right like it's a, an alternative institution for Democrats. And it's doing a lot of things. Right. But one of the things it's going to do, Lawrence, is tell that story. Right. The story that you just told, it's going to tell that story to the not Republican part of the electorate, you know, here, you know, so that they're not focused on the things that they didn't get. And they're understanding the totality of government. Right. That they are understanding, you know, these are the things that Biden delivered in toto, here are the things that didn't happen because Republicans didn't control government. Um, you know, you, you, you know, here's what would happen, too, if you do put a, a bunch of extremists back in control of American government. Uh, uh, um, a party whose governing philosophy is, you know, no, just base. You know, it's just a, it's basically no, you can't. Ha- we can't fix anything. We're not going to fix. We're not going to take any pressing pop problem. Problem from immigration to guns, to climate, to, um, you know, whatever it is, college, students, children, education, the solution for Republicans, do nothing. Unless you're talking about giving more money to rich people, their policy is to, you know, do nothing, is inaction, right? So, you know, a lot of it is messaging. But, you know, unfortunately, if you're um, listening to this program and you're a consumer of progressive media, you know, progressive media is, is tends to focus on what didn't get done instead of what does get done. Just as right wing media um, radicalized the right, left wing media can unfortunately um, have a radicalizing effect in that way, too. So but Democrats have not done a good job of telling that story of of why, like, ever, I mean, basically everything that we really value in American life has been a product of left policies, left policies brought by Democrats and usually enacted over, you know, the, the deep protestations and many, many no votes of the Republican party. So we need to do better, I think. Um, and you know, one of the things that strike pack is going to do is tell that story, tell people, what do you get when Democrats govern, and uh, Republicans don't. And when Democrats govern, you get A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And sure, you didn't get H. Okay, sure, you didn't get H, but you got all of these other things, and those things were not insignificant. You know?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you know that if um, you know if, if if you were thinking about uh, as you were watching. Hitler's rise in Germany, which was, by the way, electoral at first, you know, before he abolished elections. (laughs) Um, You didn't have to think very long about, well, what is the opposing party going to accomplish? You know, like if, let's see, I'm going to vote for Hitler or I'm going to vote for the other party. What is the other party going to accomplish? The answer is, they're going to accomplish not letting Hitler be in power. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what they're going to accomplish. Yeah. And that's a giant accomplishment, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you listen, I mean, you know, legislation, if you go into a presidency with your hopes pinned on legislation, you're asking for, no, no matter what the presidency is, you're asking for basically what much more disappointment than, uh, you know, than reward and that's absolutely true of the Trump presidency. You know, I mean, where's that, you know, repeal, yeah. the repeal of Obamacare? When did that happen? That was his biggest legislative promise, you know.
0: Yeah, and uh, the wall, right? Well, no, yeah,
1: but like, here's, the, here's the really important thing about the wall. It wasn't a legislative promise. It was a Mexican legislative promise. Yeah, that's the, true. The Mexican right? legislature was going to pay for that, you know. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But yeah, so, um, you know, the only thing they got legislatively, quite understandably, was the giant Republican tax cut, which yep. wasn't even a Trump thing. You know, that's just a McConnell thing. That's what they're going to do anyway, you know. No and, doubt. And so um, I can't think of a presidency where you could look at it and go, wow, they, you know, since probably LBJ, you know, the um, the legislative accomplishments are really impressive. And by the way, at the time, I mean, I was a kid, but when LBJ had his legislative accomplishments, nobody really thought of them as that impressive. And, and one of the reasons was he was every day stepping deeper and deeper into the stupidest war in American history. Um, and but the other part of it was um it all, you know, as important when we look back and we say the Civil Rights Act, and we see the Voting Rights Act, it all felt absurdly too late. You know, it just all yes. felt like you're kidding me like now 1965 are you kidding me
0: that's you crazy know? really yeah.
1: so it's if it was 1955 you know back when you know the brown decision in 1954 that was important. But imagine if the Brown decision was in 1964. It would have been greeted in a very different way, which is to say, oh, my God, this government is so far behind. Whoa, you know, yeah, yeah. And they just did this thing and they think they're great and they're so far behind where we need to be. And what was also understood at the time was, yeah, this Voting Rights Act, isn't. it's a nice thing on paper, but it's not really going to work. It's not, it's not like, oh, great, I now feel safe to go vote.
0: And yet it did, it ended up having like these massive teeth effects, like completely redefines the electorate in four years in the South in terms of participation. And then ultimately, you know, redefines, I mean, so much of our politics right now today, you know, like my, my work just is, is the first, I think, to to really explain like why we're at the having a democratic crisis here in America globally. um, Why so many democracies are struggling is that the end of a power paradigm that has governed human civilization for the entire time it's existed is the power paradigm of white male dominance has ended or it's ending. And the egalitarian. Paradigm is rising, where women power shared between men and women, and then um, between the races or ethnicities. And it's it's there's there's this transitional period that we're living through. This is our t- our lifetimes that we're living through, and um, that's the driver in America. It's manifesting as this polarization problem. In other countries, it's Brexit or um, you know in Hungary, it, it ended up coming authoritarianism out of democracy. So there's a lot of ways the story can end here in America too, but that's the driver. I mean, ultimately white men had all the power and now they're losing it and they're not happy about it. Now they're storming the U.S. Capitol, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, when we look at like why, you know, one of the big legislative moments, it's that 1964 and 65 doubleheader. And for somebody who lived through it, It was so such a lagged effect, and then for somebody who comes in in the nineteen seventies is born and comes in as an American political scientist who teaches, like tries to teach this topic to students. Like I teach that as like this electrifying moment in politics that changed everything, and it was like a lightning strike. And yet, you know your you know your perspective is like, oh, it was like dragging your feet and getting it. Yeah,
1: well, it was, and another part of it actually was spiritually um it was still part of the national wake for john fitzgerald kennedy that 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 legislation would not have passed exactly if kennedy had not been assassinated uh meaning it was it was considered kennedy's accomplishment as much as lbj's it was considered like lbj is fulfilling what kennedy would have tried to do um, And of course, that's just, you know, we don't know that, right? But I'm just saying that's what the perception of it was out there. Uh, There was an incredible, like, you know, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was, you know, severely ill-equipped to be president. You know, he didn't have the look, he didn't have the sound, he didn't have the style, he didn't have anything, that had be- he had the dog that had become what the <laughs> what the new presidency was supposed to be, and and Jack Kennedy had all of that right, yes, and and right. so um, it it all everything that happened in that presidency, uh, the Johnson presidency, was read as a kind of afterglow of the Kennedy presidency, and this is being and John Kennedy had to lose his life, you know, in order to create the emotional momentum for these things to happen. And um, and so Johnson himself really didn't get, he didn't, and he was always bitter, bitter, bitter about credit. You know, he's a real credit guy. And he was very, very bitter about not, you know, getting the ever the credit that he thought he deserved for that stuff. But the truth of it is, you know, Martin Luther King was dragging, was just dragging that government along. I mean, it was just the hardest thing, you know, to get them, to where they were just very, very, very difficult. And, and, it, and you felt like that, you know, you didn't, it, it, it just didn't, I did, I mean, I was a kid, a little kid in Boston and I, but what I was picking up from it was it just didn't feel celebratory, you know? And, um, and you know, the way, the way a kid, you pick up the general sense of something, you know? Right. And, um, and it felt like, cause you know, the very worst things we were going to see uh, in, you know, race relations in America, the very worst outbreaks that we're going to see in this country all happened after that. Right. You know, and I don't mean the fire hoses in Birmingham and and the lunch counter stuff. I mean, you know, literally billions of dollars in damage of cities burning and, um, you know, the the, the kind of... um, you know riot conditions that broke out um were were around the country were breaking out because of a relentless uh pain and dissatisfaction um you know and um and that was not in any way addressed by 1965 legislation
0: yeah not at all you know and i mean i actually just had watched um I was sick, and I had just watched um, *Many Rivers to Cross*, which is a documentary that is a five-part documentary, and it recounts the you know it's I guess it calls itself recounting the African American experience from 1619 to now to to, to contemporary times, um, and you know I mean I I'm well much well better versed in in the terrible treatment of of black Americans um, than average people. But even then I learned quite a bit and it, and it is just of course horrendous going through, you know, from 1619 through reliving all the atrocities that white people did to black people in America. Um, But, you know, going through it again and, and, and through the, you know, the fits and the starts, especially the way that, that, um, you know, are, we abandon, uh, Southern blacks after the, the um, civil war in reconstruction because Lincoln gets killed. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, Lincoln, uh, uh, the, I guess the 40 acres and a mule thing, like he literally gives freed Southern uh, slaves, 40 acres and a mule. And I, I, didn't realize that was a literal thing, but then he gets assassinated by John Wilkes, uh, ba- uh, John Banks. Will. Uh, what's his name? John. yeah thank you um and um johnson johnson the um vice that becomes the president because he was um, from the south and had always been teased and looked down upon by the gentry in the south because they came and groveled at his feet in the white house he gave them back the land took it back from these freed slaves and gave it back to the to these, um, you know, former or plantation owners, and screwed. I mean, that's that's the thing that like basically guaranteed, you know, another hundred years of shitty treatment for the slaves, and and then Jim Crow, of course, evolves out of that, and you know, it just sucks, you know. But 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 my, my whole point of recounting that is that you enter this child. Who's you know somewhere close to to eight or nine, te- you know eight or nine or ten, fifth grade any case, and I'm learning for the first time about civil rights in fifth grade, and it's Martin Luther King Jr. and it's 1984 or five or something like that, and I'm sitting in a Virginia school room, Sterling Park, Virginia, or no, sorry, Frederick, Maryland, and I'm and I'm like looking around and I'm looking and I'm doing the math and I'm like, it's like 84 and we're talking about 1964 and I'm like 84, 64. That's 20 years ago. <laughs> and like, I don't, I remember like, like all the other kids were like catching flies and putting them in their pencil sharpeners or whatever the kids do in school. But I was having an epiphany Lawrence. Cause like, I was like, wait a minute, hold on lady. <laughs> Are you telling me 20 frickin' years ago, like, this was happening in America. Like, right here! <laughs> in America. 20 years ago, my mom's, like, 30, okay? So, like, during her lifetime, and, like, that was the thing that, like, totally screwed me up. Like, I, that, that you know, because, like, I remember thinking, like, okay, wait a minute, where did all the racism go? Okay? Like, because, like, I'm in this mixed-race class, and, like, I just I you know I was obviously not going to be a normal person. I'm not not a normal person. I'm obviously deeply eccentric but I'm also, you know, a new, you know, on the other side of the bell curve on I- intellect. Um but yeah, I mean that was an epiphany. Like cuz like you know, up until that point, you know, it's my parents are Reagan Republicans and they weren't deeply political or anything, very very lightly po- in, into politics. Um but yeah, that that was it. That was the moment where I was like something is deeply up about this country, right? If if that if you're telling me that shit was going on 20 years ago, like, and that was the moment, I guess you could say, like politically, that I was born, you know. And so it was interesting that you should mention it because, but because because it turns out like the little girl that wondered where did all the racism go. Well, it turns out it didn't go anywhere. Right. It was here the whole time. And any black citizen could have told me that if I had, you know, had the opportunity to turn to them and say, hey, where's all the racism at? They would have said, oh, honey, it's right here. You know, <laughs> um, you know, and it's still here. And now it is fighting its last breath. And, you know, I wish I was more as optimistic, I guess, about like, you know, we were talking before the interview about, you know, Post Trump America, post Trump presidency, and it is a huge reduction of fear and stress to have the powers of the presidency depart from that man. Every moment that he held the presidency is a it, we were in immense danger. We, the world, children, dogs, kit, cats, whatever, right? Um, so getting him out was it was the equivalent of the California wildfire, uh, the worst ever, burning out of control and and risking a city. So, um, you know, it it is good to have him gone. But I do feel, I guess, a little nervous about the fact that so many uh, Republicans were willing to disenfranchise the election and take a vote to, you know, disqualify democracy. And, you know, um, I I guess I feel that we're going to have to be pretty aggressively defensive about democracy until the Republican Party until and unless we can bring the Republican party back into the mainstream and uh, you know you're not gonna sell me on on the Republican Party kind of being mainstream so long as it as it's not willing to support democracy you know um, you know a, a democratic vote and many Republicans are still not willing to say that Biden won the election. so what are your thoughts on on that? and we'll wrap it up.
1: Well yeah I mean, You know, when you think about the Biden-Harris legislative agenda and what they can get for on it, um, you know, you can hope they get as much as they can. But when you recognize that one party uh, is in favor of democracy and the other isn't, that should be a voting interest enough for you. You shouldn't have to ask, Okay, I'm going to vote for the party that's in favor of democracy. But tell me what they're going to accomplish legislatively. Like, I personally don't care. If you say, that's my choice, there's a a party that's against democracy, there's a party that's for democracy. I'm not going to ask you what the party for democracy wants to do or doesn't want to do. I'm going to say, I'm voting for the party that's in favor of democracy. Um, And now, and then, okay, tell me what you want to do. Okay, that's great. Hope you do it. But... Thank you for being in favor of democracy. That's why, you know, I'm voting for you. So, I mean, you know, people are going to be frustrated uh, by the legislative uh, process this year, as they are every year. You're not going to get what you want. You're not going to get everything you want. If you get half of what you want, that's a gigantic victory in the legislative world. I know civilians don't know that, but it's gigantic if you get half of what you set out to get. Um, But remember, uh, what you have is a party in power in the Senate that is in favor of democracy, you have a presidency that's in favor of democracy, and you didn't have that, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago.
0: And that is no small thing, especially not for the people who are are potentially going to die from it, right? So great to have you on the show. Just is fun, so, well, Rachel,
1: I really great. appreciate it.